DiscerningHearts.com presents Christian Apologetics with Dr. R. R. Reno. Dr. Reno is the editor at First Things, a journal of religion, culture, and public life. He has also served as a professor of theology at Creighton University. His theological work has been published in many academic journals. Essays and opinion pieces on religion, public life, contemporary culture, and current events have appeared in Commentary and The Washington Post. He's also the author of numerous books, including Fighting the Noonday Devil. This series explores numerous facets of faith and reason in the life of the church and the world. Grounded on the work of giants such as St. Thomas Aquinas, St. Bonaventure, Blessed John Newman, Blessed John Paul II, G.K. Chesterton, Blaise Pascal, and Stephen Barr, Dr. Reno helps us to open our minds to make the journey to our hearts. Christian Apologetics with Dr. R. R. Reno. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. Welcome, Dr. Reno. Pleasure to be here. We're beginning a series on Christian apologetics. And if we are going to delve into that subject, who better to begin the quest for knowledge than to begin with St. Thomas Aquinas. Yes, a perfect person to start with. Tell us about St. Thomas. He lived in uh, the 13th century, so kind of in the high Middle Ages. And I think we think of him as one of the great intellectual figures in the Christian tradition. And he is most influential in the Catholic tradition through what's called the Summa Theologica, uh, a summary of theology. And it's a really a kind of a textbook he wrote for his students at the University of Paris where he taught. And it's meant to be a kind of broad introduction to theology for his students that would go on into the priesthood and not just the priesthood, but they would often be bureaucrats and administrators in in the church as well. So I guess you could say that pretty much he was writing for the kind of intellectuals of his day. And that's part of what gives his uh, the Summa such lasting value uh, for anyone who's interested in the Christian faith from a kind of rigorous intellectual perspective. Dare I say he was an extraordinarily well-rounded man. Well, uh, are you, do you mean that physically? <laughs> well, I suppose he does fit in that category as <laughs> yeah, well. Yeah, he was but... notoriously rotund, but he was a sort of um, brilliant young man. He studied with Albert the Great, who was one of the most important sources for the kind of philosophical and scientific development of European culture. And St. Thomas, through Albert the Great, absorbed the philosophy of Aristotle, which was just then coming into the mainstream of the European world, because the uh, texts of, the main texts of Aristotle were lost in the Western world, but then re-entered the Western world through Arabic translations that then sort of, if you will, kind of boomeranged their way through North Africa and Spain and then were translated into Latin for the first time during uh, St. Thomas's lifetime. So he absorbed this kind of new philosophy that gave access to the kind of beginnings of the scientific uh, knowledge of Western culture. This uh, Aristotelian approach allowed for a unified view, science, the human condition, and then, of course, the question of God. He taught at the university. This must have been a time of the rise of the university system. The University of Paris predates 
St. Thomas, but it becomes more and more important in the 13th century as an intellectual center. As European culture becomes more complex, we need to have more and more kind of people well-trained in questions of law and questions of philosophy and questions of theology in order to play these important roles. Like today we think of, you know, doctors and lawyers, especially lawyers. They're kind of the, I always tell people law is the kind of grease to grease the very complicated interactions of our society and lawyers are kind of experts in that process. And in the medieval world, clergy played that role of, as I said, as of bureaucrats, advisors to to kings, advisors to feudal lords. So really literacy was something that the church provided to the culture of its day. You mentioned the Summa. I've seen it in volumes before, very intimidating, many, many large books that comprise this one work. It looks bigger than it is. Okay. The uh, translation that's most popular is a combined Latin-English translation. So it does. It takes up like 60 volumes, and you look at it on the shelf. But there's an older translation that um, was uh, done by some Dominicans in the late 19th century. And I'm not saying it's short, but it's really four volumes of small print. <laughs> small <laughs> so, print. Yes. Yeah. I, mean, I, think I, I think it's fair to say that one doesn't come to the Summa with the idea of sort of sitting down in your easy chair and reading it as you would a novel, or even as you would a kind of book of... Um, inspirational theology. Rather, the Summa is are like, what would I say? They're kind of like the professor providing lecture notes for his students to go back and be able to review and reconsider the material that was presented in class. Mm-hmm. And so, for me at least, I've never sat down and read the Summa all the way through. Instead, if I have questions, I go to it and I read the portion that addresses the subject that I'm interested in and let St. Thomas's unique focus and unique way of approaching things kind of percolate in my mind. And so it is actually a series of questions and responses? Yes. What the organization of the Summa is um, somewhat complicated um, for the uninitiated. And uh, at, at the biggest level, it's divided into three parts. The first part considers God man, and the world. In other words, what is the reality that God creates, and what is the nature of God? The second part considers the, if you will, the plasticity or the changeability of the human condition, and how we are formed and shaped and developed as the distinctive individuals that we are are as as human beings. And then the third part is really the part that considers grace, how does God or what means does God provide to um, intervene in our lives and shape us and direct us towards our proper end, which is knowledge and love of him? This particular work you've chosen on the study of Christian apologetics as the kickoff for an entrance into to understanding. Why does it play such an important role? As I said, St. Thomas is kind of uh, a touchstone. So, if I want, if I have a question about the saving work of Christ, I'll go back and look and say, what does St. Thomas say? Because for two reasons. One is that he was one of the greatest geniuses in the Christian tradition, and you always benefit from letting your, your own thoughts be guided and developed by someone whom the tradition has acknowledged as a, a truly great um, figure. 
But secondly, he's also massively influential. And so you can be kind of confident that the way he thinks about or approaches things percolates into the Catholic tradition throughout the centuries. And so if we go back to St. Thomas, we ask ourselves, well, well, what are the, the kind of intellectual, spiritual, even moral problems or objections to the Christian faith? I feel like we can go back to him confident that we'll get a kind of solid orientation to the basic outline of the problems. And then later we can go and we can add, I mean, he lived a long time ago, so we're not going to approach these things in the same way exactly. And we're very unlikely to even talk to unbelievers or doubters in the same way that St. Thomas does. He has his own way of talking. But we will find ourselves oriented by him, shaped by him, and our mind will be leavened, if you will, by his, uh, his insights. So I think it's, he's always a very good place to start for okay. any, any inquiry, and especially this one. In the beginning of the Summa, it begins with a series of questions. And under those questions are articles as far as trying to discern a response to the primary question. Yes, the Summa has three parts, and each part is divided into a series of questions, which are paradoxically not stated in question form. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, like, for instance, the question, uh, one question is on man. Another question might be on the existence of God. And then... So each question is then divided up into articles, and the articles actually ask specific questions. For instance, the, the question about what is the nature of theology, which we're going to talk about today, has 10 articles that are range from uh, whether it's necessary to study theology all the way down to whether or not the sacred scriptures have multiple senses. And so, uh, and then it was in the article that he looks at the arguments pro-con. Mm-hmm. and then develops a kind of insight for his reader to take with him or her to, to um, enrich their thinking on the matter. I can see why you compared it to a modern-day law, because it really is that type of philosophical type of dissertation, isn't it? Yes, and it's also like the law in that it's not easy for a non-expert to sort of open up a law book and really be able to figure out what's going on. And similar, the sum is not easy to uh, open up and just sort of read, partly because and when I teach this to my students, I have to warn them that each article begins with a series of objections. These are the positions that St. Thomas is going to reject, not affirm. And usually when we are asked to write something, our teachers encourage us, be sure you begin with a statement of your thesis, you know, the position that you're going to affirm. So it, it's, it goes contrary to our expectations. So we have to be very careful. Each article has three main parts. The first part are the objections. The second part is a reply that kind of clarifies the issue and sets up what St. Thomas believes to be the correct view. And then the final third part are specific responses to the, to the specific objections. In our current world, to make it very concrete for everyone, we have people who have present to us in a very open forum now through books and television the objections that we will encounter that uh, yes. St. Thomas presents to us. It's funny the way that the centuries pass, but a lot of these questions remain the same. Mm-hmm. So encountering those and then finding what his response is. And I think that's so great is that you're going to be able to help uh, translate language from the 1200s down to... Yeah, uh, 21st century. Thank you. Amazing. 
And also, one thing to keep in mind, too, at the University of Paris, it was common for the professors to be called to take all questions. Okay, so, uh, and these, these have been passed down to us, these passages or these times when St. Thomas does that. And so he might consider eight objections or 10 objections or 12 objections. But in the Summa, he chooses the ones that he thinks are the most interesting and important ones. And I think it's important to realize that sometimes he chooses them because he wants us to feel the, some of the strongest objections to, to Christian teaching. Mm-hmm. Um, to train the mind to probe more deeply. Um, so he doesn't, these aren't straw men that he sets up to knock down. Right. That's what I'm saying. He chooses the best ones, the most interesting objections. We'll return in just a moment to Christian Apologetics with Dr. R.R. Reno. Did you know that you can obtain a free app which contains all your favorite Discerning Hearts programs? Father Timothy Gallagher, Dr. Anthony Lillis, Archbishop George Lucas, Father Mauritius Fildi, and so many more, including episodes from Inside the Pages, can be obtained on the Discerning Hearts free app. This also includes all the novenas and devotionals and prayers, including the Holy Rosary and Stations of the Cross, the Chaplet of St. Michael, and the Seven Sorrows of Our Lady, all available on the Discerning Hearts free app. Visit the iTunes and Google Play app stores to obtain your free Discerning Hearts app today. A teaching from St. Paul from his letter to the Ephesians. Let no one deceive you with empty arguments. For because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the disobedient. So do not be associated with them. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. For light produces every kind of goodness and righteousness and truth. Try to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the fruitless works of darkness. Rather, expose them. For it is shameful even to mention the things done by them in secret. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible, for everything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. Watch carefully, then, how you live, not as foolish persons, but as wise, making the most of the opportunity, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not continue in ignorance, but try to understand what is the will of the Lord. And do not get drunk on wine, in which lies debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and playing to the Lord in your hearts, giving thanks always and for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God the Father. If you have been blessed in some way by the spiritual nourishment and teachings offered freely by all those involved with Discerning Hearts programs, please consider a positive review for the various programs on the iTunes and Google Play stores. This is a great way to help the ministry and is an encouragement to others who are seeking the best in spiritual formation to find and check out the programs. Won't you please help? 
It's an easy way to help give back and to be a part of the mission. Thank you, and God bless from all at Discerning Hearts. We now return to Christian Apologetics with Dr. R. R. Reno. The first question is the nature and extent of sacred doctrine. Yeah, sacred doctrine, the Latin there is sacra doctrina. Most translations will s- translate that as theology. And, uh, but there's nothing wrong with that. But we tend to think of theology as something that you know, academics do you know, after they do their dissertations or something like that. Mm-hmm. But St. Thomas, I think sacra doctrina, doctrina means literally teaching. So the literal translation would be sacred teaching and maybe even, we could say, the teachings of the church. Now, the problem is when we think teachings of the church, we think of the official teachings of the church, you know, what the magisterium teaches. Right. But I would say that what he's driving at here is, do we need the kind of thing we find in the new universal catechism, which is not, the sa- not simply the authoritative teachings of the church, that is to say the teachings of the councils or the papal encyclicals, but rather the universal catechism, as we all know, is kind of a, it's a lot of words mm-hmm. in there. And it's organized to persuade, to compel, to deepen, as well as simply to state the truths of the Catholic faith. So the difference between the Baltimore Catechism, for instance, and the new universal catechism is quite dramatic. So theology is not just a highbrow, fancy, lots of philosophical complexities for St. Thomas. Theology is really a rationally coherent appropriation of the Christian truth. And how it's expressed. Well, we do it for two reasons. We want a rational, a kind of cogent, intelligible, articulate uh, appropriation of the Christian faith for two reasons. One, we want to pass it on to others, Mm -hmm. um, but also it allows us to dwell more deeply in the truth of Christ with our minds and not just with our wills, say, or with our feelings. And for St. Thomas, the beatitude or the nature of salvation is deeply wrapped up with a kind of intellectual contemplation of, of the truth of the Holy Trinity. And so in a small way, we participate in that or we anticipate that in this life uh, if we can kind of see the logic, the point of Christian teaching. And that's what he thinks theology really is all about. So in an effort to determine the nature and extent of that sacred doctrine or teaching, uh, the need for that, uh, we have Article 1, which he states, whether besides philosophy any further doctrine is required, you have uh, more clearly articulated it as, do we need theology? I mean, this is so funny because it comes up, I remember the first time I, uh, well, I read this as uh, as a young student, but as a young teacher, when I first taught this, I'm reading that, and I'm thinking, well, of course. I mean, this is basically what most academics today are asking. You know, I teach at a Catholic university, so people say, oh, yes, we have to have theology, you know, it's Catholic university. But in their heart of hearts, with the scientists and the, you know, the so on, they don't think it's necessary. Mm-hmm. Necessary, not necessary to be a well-educated person. And you think about it, at a large state university, University of Wisconsin, you know, University of Indiana, University of Nebraska here, uh, there are no classes in theology. And so the contemporary intellectual culture does not believe that theology is necessary. So it's a very living kind of problem for people of faith when they go to get their bachelor's degrees and they go off to college or 18, 19 years old 
And do they need to continue, do they need to reflect on their faith in a kind of rigorous intellectual way? That's an important question. It really is, and I can see why it would be the first one. He states that several objections, as you said, in response to that question, the objection, do we need theology, would be the first objection, faith should be satisfied with the authoritative teachings of the Bible and the Church. Theology is inappropriate and prideful prying into the mysteries of God. You know, that's a pretty compelling sentiment. Uh, I mean, it's scriptural. He quotes scripture there in that objection when you when you look at it in full in the Summa. And part of it is this idea that isn't faith a matter of the heart? Isn't faith a matter of trust? And isn't reasoning a matter of proving? Isn't mm-hmm. reasoning a matter of kind of critical, exi- kind of cold critical examination, but faith is warm kind of affirmation? Aren't they really antithetical to each other? And so as a result, theology, because it's kind of intellectualizing faith is really actually bad, not good. Um, I've certainly heard this from many people of faith who are concerned that intellectual project actually undermined faith. So I, I think it's a very living objection, and it's one that's uh, not an easy one to respond to because there's a, there's a kernel of truth to that objection. Our intellectual lives can be a source of pride. We can falsely think that we should only believe what we can prove, uh, or we can uh, imagine that somehow we, through our intellectual endeavors, are actually doing this sort of more important work than um, the life of prayer, and so on. So this is a de- genuine objection that needs to be taken quite seriously. Well, the second objection is we essentially we don't need theology because wisdom is the highest goal of all thinking, and philosophy is the love of wisdom. Therefore, all we need to study is philosophy. The word philosophy. Philia and Sophia, philosophia, combine the Greek for love and wisdom. And you think to yourself, well, what could be higher? What could be greater than a love of wisdom? And here I think my, my colleagues at the university, I think, intuitively agree with this or, or feel strongly that the power of this objection. They think, well, I mean, surely the scientific project, the modern scientific project, and the kind of reflectiveness of modern philosophy uh, maybe, and then you add maybe a little literature, poetry, art history. I mean, surely that's enough. You know, surely that's really the well-rounded person. So all we really need are the great achievements of the modern university. We don't need to sort of tack on something like theology. And that's a valid objection even today. I mean, so much so, not just in, again, not just in St. Thomas Aquinas's time, but also in today's world. Yes. So the overall response, Dr. Reno, would be what to these two objections? Remember now, in the general response, usually what St. Thomas is trying to do is almost always these objections have a kernel of truth to them. And so, but they're only half true. Uh, And this is often very true in life. We very rarely miss the mark 100%. And so you always, you have to explain to people, now, now, wait a minute here. I mean, you're right insofar as it, in a certain respect, you're right, but not completely. So what he does is he says, look, philosophy or our, our minds are suited to know the natural truth, the created truth. But God has created us, human beings, for fellowship with himself. And this is above nature. This is what's called supernatural. Mm-hmm. And so therefore, the work of the mind cannot attain these supernatural truths. Therefore, God must reveal those truths. 
and theology is the study of these revealed truths. And so when someone says science or philosophy is enough, it's enough for our participation in our created nature, but it is not enough for our full participation in fellowship with God. And because human beings were created for fellowship with God, therefore this kind of intellectual engagement with revelation is necessary also. QED, as they say, thus it is, it is demonstrated, quote est demonstratum, thus it is demonstrated. There you go with that Latin again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> In essence, that overall response helps to answer those first two objections that first, primarily, that theology is an inappropriate and prideful prying into the mysteries of God. Well, let's look at that. What he does is he, he says, look, it is pretentious to imagine that I can reason my way into fellowship with God, or I can reason my way to salvation, right? But it is not pretentious to use my reason to contemplate the gifts of revelation. And so there's a difference between trying to sort of reason your way from physics, if you will, to church teaching. Um, That's kind of a bizarre idea that we can pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. But it's Mm -hmm. not pretentious to, to submit your reason and allow it to be guided by the teachings of the church. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, that's exactly the opposite of pride. That requires a great deal of intellectual humility. So by distinguishing the natural competence of reason from the relative incompetence of reason with respect to the truths about uh, salvation, uh, St. Thomas is able to explain to us how use of reason in theology is not prideful at all, but rather a sign of a kind of intellectual humility. And then also responding to objection two, which is that we don't need theology, that essentially it is philosophy. Yeah, philosophy is, is enough. I think that what he does there is to say philosophy is in fact competent, fully competent with respect. And here by philosophy, he doesn't mean just philosophy classes. For him, in, that, in those days, philosophy meant all of what we would call the uh, disciplines of the modern university, everything from mathematics through biology to literature classes and so on. That would all be philosophy, if mm-hmm. you will, natural philosophy, political philosophy, social philosophy, rhetorical, philosophy of rhetoric, and so on. So the university, I would put it then, is competent with respect to created truth. And that you and I and a young person going off to college rightfully submits ourselves to the competence of those disciplines, the authority of those disciplines. But those disciplines are not competent with respect to revealed truths. And so, therefore, we shouldn't think that philosophy is sufficient and adequate, or the university education is sufficient or adequate in itself, but rather it is necessary to uh, develop a competence or an intellectual appreciation for the teachings of the church, which are not natural truths, but rather supernatural truths. So you can see there's a kind of natural, Mm -hmm. supernatural distinction that he develops there that helps him explain how... Uh, theology is an act of humility, not pride, and how philosophy does have a proper natural competence, but does not have supernatural competence. And we'll see how they interact together more as we explore further into the Summa, and in particular the first question. But unfortunately, we're out of time. So, Dr. Reno, thank you very much, and I look forward to our next session on Christian apologetics as well as diving into the Summa with St. Thomas. Very good. Thank you. You've been listening to Christian Apologetics, 
with Dr. R.R. Reno. To hear and or to download this conversation, along with hundreds of other spiritual formation programs, visit discerninghearts.com. This has been a production of Discerning Hearts. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. We hope that if this has been helpful for you, that you will first pray for our mission. And if you feel us worthy, consider a charitable donation, which is fully tax-deductible, to help support our efforts. But most of all, we hope that you will tell a friend about discerninghearts.com and join us next time for Christian Apologetics with Dr. R.R. Reno.